Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean, and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. Let's take a moment and offer a word of prayer as we begin our our study. Good and loving God, we stop for a moment here in the midst of worship to acknowledge the power of your presence among us. Lord, for the majority of our time spent throughout the week, we, we confess the reality that you are present and active and always up to something, but we also confess that we are typically blind to recognize it. Seldom do we sense it, and, and even more rarely do we respond to it by faith. So in these coming moments, as, as you speak to us through your written word, we pray that something would happen so that your living word may transform us in such a way that we leave this hour of worship so transformed that the world around us recognizes it and that we may join you and participate with you in the ongoing reconciliation of the world. We pray these things believing that you hear us and trust in you completely. Amen. So today, whether you are here in the sanctuary or in our family life center worshiping or you're at home still continuing in remote worship today we are in the middle now of a new sermon series a sermon series entitled one where we're talking about the unity of the church the power of the oneness of the body of christ And we've been talking about this, and we will be talking about this for the next few weeks simply because we are living in a divided age. We're living in a world that is fractured and is fracturing even as we speak. And we considered last week that our Lord, on the night he was betrayed, prayed the longest prayer recorded in the New Testament of Jesus praying, and he prayed that we may be one. Lord, make them one, Father, as you and I are one. Make them one so that the world may know that you have sent me. This was his prayer, that we would be made one for a particular purpose, that the world around us would recognize that Christ has been sent. And we considered last week that the use of that word world is a word cosmos in the Greek, which means the way things are ordered. And Jesus was praying, as we considered last week, make them one so that the present way things are ordered will know in them that there is another way, another way to live and love and exist with one another in this new humanity that he is creating in us. And today we continue in that, but I have a sermon title for you today. 
So those of you who are taking notes, if you're keeping track, right, as we go along, I have a title to give you. Now this title was a new phrase to me uh, recently. I've not used this phrase in a long time. My sons were the ones who introduced this concept because it's been unused for a long time. In fact, it's a relatively new way to express what I'm going to express today. It's so new and it's so used now that in 2019, McCrary's Dictionary named this phrase as the 2019 Word of the Year. So today, the message I want to bring to you is cancel culture. Cancel culture. You know what it is to be a part of a cancel culture? A cancel culture just means this. By definition, here's here's what it means. It means to withdraw support from a public person, an individual, or a company, or a group because of something that that person or group or company did or said that is publicly unacceptable or that is socially, socially abrasive or offensive. And usually, cancel culture involves canceling people out online. It usually involves this massive online experience of social shaming by large groups of people. Now, I can give you a couple of examples, and you know some of the most notorious of recent years. I mean, you know what happened when allegations and and, uh, accusations came out about Bill Cosby and what he was tried for. You know about Harvey Weinstein and these egregious acts of abuse and sexual misconduct then create a kind of firestorm. And in our environment where we all now have a mouthpiece, right, on our phone, and where we all have a social media platform from which to spout what we want to uh, say, there is this rising tide of social shaming called canceling. Now, you and I may not have a problem socially canceling, canceling those who make, perform egregious acts. I mean, it's been around since Nathaniel Hawthorne, right, in the Scarlet Letter, right? We, we've always done this. But here's what's interesting as I watch what's happening in this cancel-driven culture that we live in. You don't even have to have the whole story to cancel somebody. I mean, Ellen DeGeneres, this past month, had to defend herself. Everybody loves Ellen. How are you not going to love Ellen? Ellen's so generous, kind, loving, fun, funny. And yet because a former employee told stories about the reality that behind the scenes she's a tough boss and she's mean to her employees and runs a tight ship, because of the accusations that off camera she is way wait for it, meaner, than she is on camera. Well, then there's this rising, swelling tide of cancellation. And so she's now addressing that and having to kind of take up for her. So it doesn't even have to be the whole story for you to be canceled, see. And you know, it does, you don't even have to be talking about something that happened this week to be canceled. I mean, to be canceled, somebody can reach way back in your past and find something that you said or did a long time ago and bring it up and in the current context cancel you for what you did then because it doesn't, it doesn't jibe with the social norms of today. For example, Kevin Hart, one of the funniest comedians alive. Love Kevin Hart. Kevin Hart, great actor, funny man, hilarious comedian. A couple years ago he had an opportunity 
to be the host of the Oscars. It was going to be great. I would have tuned in that night, right? Well, somebody found that years ago, he found a, found a, a clip of, of his stand-up routine where he told a joke that was considered homophobic in some circles. A joke that he would never tell today and a joke that was based on a belief or a, a kind of perspective that he doesn't even hold today. But because he held it then and said some things then, there was this rising tide of canceling Kevin. So there was, there was a rising tsunami of cancel culture until he just said, I'm not doing it. I'm not, not going to host. See, last year, 2019, the New York Times uh, issued an article called Everyone is Canceled. Because it's so prevalent now and so easy to say, you know what, you said that thing, I'm done. Mm, you believe this thing, I'm done. Mm, you didn't use this hashtag like I used it, I'm done. You know? It's so prevalent that everybody is being canceled. You can be canceled eventually longer, sooner or later, the longer you live and the more that you are who you are, you can be canceled by somebody. In fact, in that article, there was a list of people living and dead who recently are being canceled by particular groups of people. Now just tune into this list. Mandela, canceled. Martin Luther King Jr., canceled. Galileo, canceled. Joan of Arc, six popes. Socrates, Pharaoh uh, Akhenaten, which everybody knows, that's our least favorite Pharaoh, right? Taylor Swift, canceled. Kanye West, canceled. I mean, Kanye West was canceled before he became a Christian, by Christians, then he became a Christian, and he's canceled by people who think he's not really a Christian. Canceled, right? Kanye West, Bill Gates, Gwen Stefani, wait for this, the new live-action remake of Mulan. Canceled. Cristiano Ronaldo, and of course, Jesus. Canceled. The trouble with cancel culture is so many layers, right? But the truth is, you don't even have to be a celebrity to be canceled. Why am I talking about cancel culture to start this, this sermon, this message about unity? Because of this. Everything that you, you know this, right? Everything that you and I observe on a public platform is really just a projection publicly of problems that you and I have privately. Every public shaming that we see on the public platform is really a problem because it is, it's a projection of our private problems that we think we can keep to ourselves because we all have a tendency to cancel and be canceled. You don't have to be a celeb to be canceled today. Just ask anybody under the age of 21. Ask any teenager, they'll tell you. You sit with the wrong people, you're canceled by the other folks. You post the wrong post, tweet the wrong tweet. If you don't use the right hashtag or you use the right hashtag but it's a day too late, canceled, right? And the trouble with canceling is that we are living, it shouldn't surprise us, in a fractured and fracturing world. And so the cancel culture makes a lot of sense in the cosmos, the present ordering of things. But when, when the way things are ordered outside the church become the way inside the church that's where well that's where i have some things to say <laughs> because you and i are part of a 
a body of Christ intended to, to demonstrate to the world a different way to order life. And you and I are intended to be those who, who not only do not participate in the canceling of one another as human beings, but we, we choose not to participate in that because if we really think about it more than five seconds, Jesus called the canceled. Jesus called the canceled. Now, what we're going to have to do during COVID, while you're very faithfully, thank you, wearing your masks, is that when you groan in affirmation, and, and when you amen in celebration of a truth you've heard, it's got to be louder, you're muffled, right? Jesus called the canceled. Everyone he ever called to follow him or surround his ministry were people who in their day were notoriously canceled from something. People who were canceled from their families, canceled from their villages, canceled even from their own religion. And he said, I'll have dinner with you. I will eat with sinners and prostitutes and thieves. If the world has canceled you, I will break bread with you. Jesus says. In fact, if you pay close attention to those in his most inner circle, well, those who were closest to him were made up of a thief, a betrayer, a prostitute, and someone who, as his own brother, James, didn't even believe him when he began his ministry. He thought he had lost his mind. But instead of Jesus canceling James because James wasn't on board, he made room for him at the table because Jesus is attempting always to set up a new humanity a different order in which we live and move and breathe and have our existence so think about for just a moment the table that Jesus seats or the, the table that Jesus sets the last supper the last meal that he had with his disciples before being betrayed before being arrested if you just consider the pairs of opposites sitting at the table who he had surrounded himself with the reality is at that table there were pairs of people dyads of disciples who typically in other circumstances would be mutually canceling each other out you had simon the zealot this zealot who was a part of a political party whose objective was to overthrow the roman empire to uprise and tear down the government and sitting across the table from Simon the Zealot, who felt some kind of strong way about his, his political leanings, right, was Matthew, the tax collector, who worked for the Roman Empire and got a paycheck from Caesar. And they're breaking the same bread with one another. Can you believe that? Or, or you've got James and John, they're brothers, but they have a nickname. They're called the Sons of Thunder, you don't get a nickname like the Sons of Thunder without having some kind of personality, being able to fill the room, right, with some kind of energy. Sons of Thunder, outgoing, extroverted, present. But sitting across from the Sons of Thunder was a disciple who we know so little about that all we really know is his nickname, James the Lesser. James the Son of Thunder and James the Lesser. Ever been a part of a team at work? Ever been a part of an organization where some personalities are one way and some are another and you just eat both mutually, just can't wait to get out of the room from one another? And there they are sharing a cup of wine 
Because Jesus deliberately calls disciples of diversity to break bread with him. So Jesus calls these who are seemingly opposite from one another to make space for and with one another at the table. Now what does that mean to you and me? It means that if Jesus has constructed inherently in the movement of Jesus space for us to abide without canceling each other, then maybe we can do that. And so in Colossians, we, we hear these words. Listen to, to what Paul says in Colossians chapter 2. You were dead because of your sins. And because your sinful nature was not yet cut away, see, then God made you alive with Christ, for he forgave all your sins. Now here is the money verse. Right here is the money verse. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. What does it mean that Jesus would take away and cancel the charges, the record that's against us? It means there is nothing that you have done and nothing that you can do that would cancel the Lord's love for you because his work on the cross actually canceled cancellation itself. <laughs> Somebody say amen. amen. The work of Jesus on the cross was not simply to provide you a way to heaven, but that while you're waiting on heaven, and while you're living here below, he cancels the very energy and impact of cancellation itself. That means if you qualify, because he has made you to qualify, if, if all the egregious things that you have done were not so bad that Jesus would still keep you away, then I wonder what it would look like for us to begin learning to see one another and all the egregious offenses that we have with one another. I wonder what it would look like to ask Christ to teach us to see in each other what he sees in us. <laughs> so this week in my research for this message, I came across a, a theologian, uh, Tullian um, uh, Chivijan. Tullian Chivijan is talking about the, the, the cancel culture that I'm talking about. And he's talking about how there's a difference in Jesus and how Jesus, because of the work of the cross, provides you and me a way to, to not only resist the cancel culture of our age, but to subvert it, to turn it upside down. Listen to what, what he says. He said, that's the big difference between Jesus and cancel culture. While our culture, including the church, cancels people who have done terrible things, Jesus cancels the terrible things that people are canceled for. Come on. Can we just let that sit there for a minute? Yeah, come on, clap or something. While culture, including the church, I'm just going to say it again, cancels people who have done terrible things, Jesus cancels the terrible things that people are canceled for. And he goes on to say this, the sins and scandals that cancel culture chooses not to forget, Jesus chooses not to remember. I mean, the work of the cross is all-sufficient in that all of your sins and all of mine are forgiven in an instant because of the grace of God 
as seen in the sacrifice of Christ. But the truth is, it's not just for you. and It's not just for me. He cancels the very power of cancellation so that in our redeemed state, we ought to be transforming the mind. We ought to be transformed in the heart so that we learn over the course of our journey to be more loving of others and not less the older we get. To where we learn to see behind the sin to the person. Where maybe it's not even a sin. Where you think about somebody right now. Let's do, a, let's do an experiment. I don't say it out loud, by the way. I mean, come on. That could really wreck a sermon. If you, especially if, if you say is me. So don't say anything out loud. But I want you to think right now for a moment about somebody who you just have a hard time loving. And I just said that in a very polite way. Because none of us like to say that we hate people. None of us like to confess, at least openly, that we despise people. None of us like to admit, even to our closest friends, that we wish we could just erase and cancel people. But I want you to think of somebody who qualifies like that for you. Think of, put put, put the person's face in your mind. Can you see him or her? And maybe it's somebody who who thinks in a way that is so different than you. And it may be somebody who does something or has done something or won't do something, and you just cannot stay. Maybe it's somebody who believes just a little bit differently than you or does parenthood a little differently than you do, orders their family a little differently. Maybe it's somebody who's going to be voting for another person other than the one you're voting for in a few weeks. I want you to think. It may be somebody that we're voting for that you're, you know, you're thinking about. And I want you to think about all the things that actually make you want to cancel them. Got it? What if there were a way to cancel the thing without canceling the person? I mean, what if there really was a way to to do what God did? To look behind the fault the imperfection, the unfinished story, or to look behind the thing that just at the end of the day, darn it, is different than me. So different than me, I just can't get my head around how you would order your life that way. What if we could somehow get beyond that to the person for whom Jesus died? Would it change how we think and feel about them? Could it change how we actually actively love them? Now, last week, I put out a challenge to all of JCBC. Last week I said, hey, from now until after the election, my challenge is that we do not post any political posts at all. I mean, don't post, don't tweet, don't like, don't share, don't comment. And some of you are doing a really good job. I'm really proud of you. It's hard, I know. It's very difficult. But I saw something this week that inspired me. I didn't comment on it, didn't like it, didn't share it. But man, if I could have, heart a thousand times. If I could have lifted it off and embraced it physically, I would have embraced this meme that I saw. Because what if Jesus had a social media platform? What would he post, especially this month, in this incredibly divisive time, in a fractured and fracturing world? Would it be something like this? Kamala is beloved. Donald is fearfully and wonderfully made. Mike is cherished. 
Joe is someone, I really can't read it. <laughs> Joe, somebody read it. Something like that, yeah. If you can, if you can read it. Is, it. Was someone for whom I, someone for whom Jesus died for, right? Can we just sit with that for just a moment? All of the biggest public personalities that we're all thinking about right now, and we all feel some kind of way about somebody on that screen, right? But have we considered the possibility that Jesus feels some kind of way about them too? About every one of them. And if that's so, should that not somehow inform and even transform how we think not only about the public officials like we're talking about on the screen, but about each other? Should we not be able to transform the way we actually view and do our shared life with each other? Because this whole series is about unity, right? It's about oneness and the power of oneness. But the truth that is inherent in the very way Jesus has set this whole thing up, this new humanity, is this. Oneness is not sameness. And unity is not uniformity. Can you let that settle just on the mind and heart for just a moment? Oneness is not sameness. Unity is not uniformity. In other words, we can be one in the Spirit and not have to think exactly the same way. We can be unified in the purpose for which we have been gathered and not have to, well, think, exactly believe, vote, order our lives in the same way. Oneness is not the same thing as sameness. And the truth is, this is how it has always been in the Lord's church. But there have been seasons in the history of the Christian church when it becomes more challenging to remember this truth. And you and I, as the church of Jesus Christ, alive today, are being challenged on all sides to remember this truth, that we were born with deliberate diversity in the disciplehood process. Early on in the early church, you realize the first Christians were Jews, right? But not just all Jews. The first Christians were part of Judaism, but Judaism was made up of all kinds of divisions. There were the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the Essenes and the Zealots, all of whom had particular political uh, sensibilities and, and convictions that they brought to their Judaism. And when each of them comes from their particular part on the spectrum to follow Jesus in this new way, they bring all that diversity with them. And then it's not just Jews, but then there are Greeks or Gentiles. That's the rest of us. That's most of us, right? Except you, Dave. I saw you back there. Except, yeah, most of us who are non-Jew, it's Greeks and, and those who come from a wide array of every kind of background with all of our baggage from family and our cultural baggage, our racial baggage, all the things that we bring, they too began to follow Jesus. But not just the Jews and the Gentiles, Samaritans. Samaritans were a biracial people. After the exile, all the, the leaders of the land were exiled into Babylon, and those who remained, the working class, fell in love with the Babylonians who had come to occupy their land, got married, had kids, and a whole new race began to emerge among them. 
And the Jews hated the Samaritans, and the Samaritans hated the Jews, but from the Jews, Gentiles, and Samaritans, this new way of life called the Christian church began to emerge. But not only that, in the first century, there were slaves who began to follow Jesus, slave masters who began to follow Jesus, ex-slaves who began to follow Jesus. And all of the, well, the slaves couldn't stand the slave masters, and the slave masters hated the ex-slaves, That was revenue right out the door, so they despised them. Then the ex-slaves, they looked down on the current slaves, and the current slaves, well, they despised the freedom of the ex-slaves. You see what I'm saying? And all of them beginning to follow this one who made room at the table for all of them. And let's not forget, there were men and women, diversity of every kind. And it was deliberate. And so if Jesus establishes deliberate diversity then, why wouldn't he now? So Paul picks up and writes a letter to another church at Galatia, and he realized there were tensions between the different kinds of followers of Jesus because they all brought different baggage. They all had different political thoughts, different theological traditions, different cultural and relational and, or, 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 or religious or racial backgrounds, and Jesus And Paul picks up a pen and he begins to write in the third chapter, verse 28, there is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male and female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to to the promise. And in this text, Paul is not saying, look, you're in Christ now, so stop being all those things. To be a Christian meant, if you were a man and became a Christian, it didn't mean you ceased being a man. If you were Jewish and and you, you, you became a Christian, it didn't mean that you ceased being a Jewish Christian or a Greek Christian, female Christian. The truth is, Paul was not saying you undo everything that brings diversity to this movement. Instead, he's saying, now I, I, you have something that no longer allows any of those things to be the dominant way you identify yourself. That means that there is no longer any dominant way to identify yourself other than I am in Christ. But being in Christ means I bring all of my Jewishness and I bring all of my Greekness, all of my Gentileness, all my male and femaleness, I bring it all to bear because now in that great spectrum of diversity with all of its hues and traditions and customs, we now in each of our diverse perspectives have a way to bear witness in the world that is different from one another. As long as we are bound together by the essentials, The essential that Jesus is the Lord of life and that in him and through his resurrection, a new humanity has been established. And if we are in Christ and are able to understand our identity is defined by him and not anything else, then we are able to be emissaries, able to be missionaries, able to be those who are messengers to all of our various starting points so that we can go back to those starting points and talk and live as if we have actually been transformed so maybe the key to that whole verse i just read 
is at the tail end of chapter, or verse 28, and the beginning of chapter 29, or verse 29. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. You know what that means? Everything that has previously canceled you no longer has any power to cancel you. You belong. But also it means that every reason we've used to justify our own cancellation of others is also nailed to the cross. That in Christ, something has changed in me. And I can't see you the way I used to see you anymore. Because now I see you as my brother. And now I see you as my sister. And maybe the most important word of that whole verse is the word if. If you belong to Christ. Now, if you don't belong to Christ, it's kind of hard to make this argument, isn't it? If you don't belong to Christ, you don't understand what it means to have a transformed mind and heart. But if you belong to Christ, if you have submitted yourself to a way of life that is ordered differently than the way in which the world is ordered, well, then transformation is possible. And true unity, not false unity, not pretense where we sit around a campfire and strum a guitar and sing kumbaya to make sure that we feel better about being together. I'm talking about true unity where I know you think differently than I do. And I know that you believe differently than I do. And I know you vote differently than I do. But because you confess that Jesus is Lord and I confess that he is Lord, well, then you belong to me and I belong to you. And if we can model that, not just this month, (laughs) but until the age to come, then we may be able to call ourselves what the text just called us, heirs, heirs of Abraham, called to establish a new humanity right here and right now. The world is calling. (laughs) And the choice is ours, whether we pick up the call To show them what it looks like and feels like to order life like Jesus and not like every other model of division and disunity. So maybe today you're here and you're you're hearing this. And maybe you're in the sanctuary and you're hearing my words or in the FLC, the Family Life Center, or you're at home and you're you're hearing and, and and it sounds so promising. Maybe what you're hearing is, you know, I'd love to be a part of a faith, a religion, a, 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 a church where we actually make room for one another. I'd like to be a part of a place where when people drive by and they see this steeple, they recognize that inside this place are people who are, well, dyads of diversity breaking bread with each other. Those who typically outside this place would, would be mutually canceling each other out, but in that place, under that steeple, well, they're the ones, they're peculiar people there because they're the ones who share the cup with people who are going to be standing in a long voting line and yet cancel each other's votes out because they don't all think the same. They don't all believe exactly the same, but the one thing they all share in common is they have one person that unifies them. And under that, Lord, I'd like to find my place. And if that's where you are today, it it can start as simple as a, a prayer. And maybe you need to pray it this way, sitting right where you are, 
believing with your whole heart, maybe you borrow these words. Lord, I recognize that I am part of a broken world and I, I recognize my part contributing to the canceling of one another, the brokenness of the world. I, I confess to you that my heart is filled at times with animosity and, and hate and, and judgment and condemnation. And I confess to you that I probably have made others want to cancel me too because I'm not perfect and, and I am, I'm unfinished. But I recognize that you're a different, you're a different kind of Lord. You're a different kind because you are the one who, who tells us to come even when we're unfinished and imperfect. And if there's room at your table, Lord, for me, then I'll come. And I confess my sins and I lay down my ego and, and I pray that you would forgive me of all the ways I've contributed to the brokenness of this world. I belong to you now. I want to follow you for the, for the rest of my journey. Amen. See, if you prayed that prayer, regardless of where you are, if you prayed a prayer like that, you need to know that it counts and that it's heard. You need to understand that now it's time to share that news with somebody. So at the end of the service in the sanctuary, Glenn will be standing right here to welcome you and to talk about your next step of faith. In the Family Life Center, Michael McCuller is over to your, to your left. and You'll meet him over there right after the conclusion of the service to talk to him about how you pray. Just, just tell him, I, I just pray the prayer, and he'll take it from there. Or if you're at home, we still need you to, to say something to somebody. So email us at connect at jcbc.org. And we'll pick up the conversation and take another step of faith together with you. But for now, it's time for us to scatter empowered into the world. So wherever you are, if you'll stand to your feet, both in here in the sanctuary and in the Family Life Center, you can stand to your feet at home if you want to. And as we prepare to dismiss, our ushers in the sanctuary will be making their way in front of your pews to dismiss your section in just a moment. But wherever it is that you go from this place, may Christ go before you to prepare your way. May Christ go behind you on the days that you, you fear and feel like retreating to encourage you one step further at a time. May Christ go to your right and Christ to your left, abiding closer than, than even a sister or a brother. May Christ go above you on days when dark clouds roll in to remind you there is one above the clouds who, who at the end of the day has the final word. May Christ go beneath you, girding you with confidence and removing all forms of fear. But most of all, may Christ go in you transforming you from the inside out until your hearts beat in rhythm with his.